0: Today we'll be reading Deuteronomy chapters 21 through 23. In the first nine verses of chapter 21, we find another heifer, but this time the heifer is being sacrificed for an unresolved murder. Verse 1, If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who hath slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure into the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take an heifer, which hath not been wrought with, and which hath not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer into a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priest, the son of Levi, shall come near for them the lord thy god hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the lord and by their words shall every controversy and every stroke be tried and all the elders of the city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley and they shall answer and say our hands have not shed this blood neither have our eyes seen it "'Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge, and the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord.'" Well, we saw a ritual involving a red heifer back in Numbers chapter 19, but that one was for the ceremonial cleansing of those who had touched dead bodies. This is a heifer, but not necessarily red. When a slain body is discovered, the elders of the city closest to the location of the body are obligated to bring a specially qualified heifer to the site and slay it there with the priest by breaking her neck and offering a prayer that the blood of the slain one be not charged to the innocent people of Israel. In verses 10-14 through 14 we find, What a way to land a wife! Verse 10. When thou goest forth to war against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands, and thou hast taken them captive, and seest among the captives a beautiful woman, and hast a desire unto her, that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Then thou shalt bring her home to thine house, and she shall shave her head, and pare her nails. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in thine house, and bewail her father and her mother a full month. And after that thou shalt go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. And it shall be, if thou have no delight in her, then thou shalt let her go whither she will. But thou shalt not sell her at all for money. Thou shalt not make merchandise of her, because thou hast humbled her. Well, now here's an interesting law. She's a prisoner of war, and now you decided you want to marry her. According to this provision of the law... She may be taken as a wife by the Hebrew captor after she's given a full month to mourn the loss of her family. At that point, she shaves her head and pairs her nails to indicate a new life as a Hebrew wife. Notice the disposition of this woman if the Hebrew husband tires of her. Before marriage as a slave, she could have been sold. But after marriage, she must be given her freedom to go wherever she pleases. Of course, she has no family to which she may return." In verses 15 through 17, we find that a disenfranchised elder son, he catches a break. Verse 15, If a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated, then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he hath, that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated." which is indeed the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Well, Jacob, in fact, did show partiality toward the firstborn son of Rachel, that was Joseph, who actually was the eleventh of the twelve sons born to Jacob. This law literally protects the rights of the firstborn no matter how much you hated his mom. Ironically, had Abraham been subject to this law, he could not have blessed Isaac over Ishmael with the rights of the firstborn. Here we see a definition of firstborn rights as a double portion of all that he hath. Now, how about some parents? Can they get some respect? Well, I think they can. Look at verse 18 down through verse 21. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and into the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones, that he die. So shalt thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Uh, Mom, couldn't I just go to my room without supper? His mom replies, Son, where you're going, you won't be needing a supper. Yes, we're talking about the stoning to death of one's rebellious son. What age son are we talking about here, do you suppose? Well, he'd have to be under the age of 20. That's the age of manhood in Israel. So how fed up with your son must you be to take these drastic measures? I'm just guessing that this punishment encouraged model behavior. Just the threat ought to do it. It's worth noting that the mandate for further investigation or other witnesses seen in Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 14 and Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 4, well, that's not required in this instance. The word of the parents is all that is required right here in this passage. Now, Paul made a reference to these next two verses, and we're going to talk about that after I read the verses. Verse 22, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, as I mentioned, Paul quoted this verse. Let's look at Galatians chapter three, verse thirteen. Here's what it says. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Well, here is the law in verses twenty two and twenty three to which Paul is making reference. Jesus literally became accursed by God as he was upon the cross redeeming the world. The hanging of a body on a tree was most often done not as the means of death, but rather as a form of public humiliation after death. In the example given here, we know that the means of death for adultery is stoning. The Philistines did similarly with Saul's body by hanging him on a wall after his death in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 through 13. Also, you may recall that the heads of the Hebrew idol worshippers were similarly placed on display before Israel, back in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. Now, we're going to read some laws in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 12, that people don't talk too much about keeping these laws. Verse 1, Thou shalt not see thy brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt in any case bring them again unto thy brother. And if thy brother be not nigh unto thee, or if thou know him not, then thou shalt bring it into thine own house, and it shall be with thee until thy brother seek after it, and thou shalt restore it to him again. In like manner thou shalt do with his ass, and so shalt thou do with his raiment. And with all lost thing of thy brothers, which he hath lost, and thou hast found, shalt thou do likewise, thou mayest not hide thyself. Thou shalt not see thy brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way, and hide thyself from them. Thou shalt surely help him to lift them up again. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. If a bird's nest chance to be before thee in the way in any tree or on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, and the dam sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, thou shalt not take the dam with the young. But thou shalt in any wise let the dam go, and take the young to thee, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest prolong thy days. When thou buildest a new house, then thou shalt make a battlement for thy roof, that thou bring not blood upon thine house, if any man fall from thence. Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of the vineyard be defiled. Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. Thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts, as of woolen and linen together. Thou shalt make the fringes upon the four quarters of thy vesture, wherewith thou coverest thyself. Now, I still find it interesting that many Christians want to enforce on others the mosaic laws they like and disregard the rest of the laws, the ones they don't like. Now, here are a group of laws that are obviously culturally motivated, dealing with lost property, transvestitism, and treatment of birds' nests, building codes, and forbidden pairings. For people who maintain that believers today are responsible for keeping all the Old Testament laws, they just haven't spent much time reading the Old Testament now, have they? Now, the laws found here govern the following. They govern the lending assistance to a fellow Hebrew with regard to his cattle in verses 1 through 4. No cross-dressing in verse 5. Apparently, that was to combat a form of sexual deviation in that day. Regarding a bird's nest, we find in verses 6 and 7, take the young or the eggs, but let the mama go free. In verse 8, we find the installation of safety rails upon one's house. Don't want anybody to get hurt now. No sowing an assortment of seeds in one's vineyard in verse 9, the reason we don't know, although it's stated again in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. No yoking an ox and an ass together for plowing purposes. That's in verse 10. No mixing fabric weaves and garments in verse 11. We don't know why, although it's stated again in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. And then finally, the installation of fringes on one's garments in verse 12. Now, I have notes on that, called a zit in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, for more details on that issue. Then we have some Hebrew law concerning betrothal and marriage in verses 13 to 30 of chapter 22. Verse 13. If any man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her, and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity into the elders of the city and the gate. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to wife, and he hateth her. And lo, he hath given occasion of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a maid. And yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And the elders of that city shall take that man and chastise him. And they shall immerse him in an hundred shekels of silver, and give them unto the father of the damsel, because he hath brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, he may not put her away all his days. But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house, so shalt thou put evil away from among you. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out into the gate of that city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so thou shalt put away evil from among you. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her, and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. But unto the damsel thou shalt do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death, for as when a man riseth against his neighbor and slayeth him, even so is this matter." For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he hath humbled her. He may not put her away all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, nor discover his father's skirt." Well, Israel observed the practice of legally binding periods of betrothals. Some period of time later, apparently uh, typically a year or so, the marriage would follow. This betrothal doesn't compare very well to our modern practice of a marriage engagement or of the wedding ceremony. The betrothal was a legally binding agreement between the father and the groom. This usually took place a year or more before the marriage. From the time of betrothal, the woman was regarded by everyone as the lawful wife of the man to whom she was betrothed. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 30 and Judges chapter 14 verse 2 and verse 8, and again in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 21. Now, the marriage itself, I mean the actual marriage, consisted basically of the consummation of the relationship. Now, here's the unusual part. Immediately after the first night for the newlyweds, the parents of the bride would strip the bed and hold and storage the bedsheet for future reference. All right, now listen to this closely. If the new husband ever called into question the virginity of the bride prior to that night, the stained bedsheet served as evidence before the elders of the city. A false accusation by the husband resulted in a stiff, fine, and he relinquished his right to ever divorce her. However, if her virginity previous to her wedding night could not be proved, then she was stoned to death. Verses 22-30 to give us a view of the emphasis placed upon a Hebrew woman's virginity as well as the standing of their women in that society. Her virginity is treated more as the property of her father or husband rather than her own. You'll notice in verses 23 and 24 that a man betrothed to a woman is called her husband. We then see some special conditions listed with regard to whom gets stoned in the cases of adultery in verses 21 through 30. You'll notice that stoning was the associated punishment for adultery in these cases, when the woman was the wife or betrothed of another, but not otherwise. If the woman was not committed to another man, the penalty was not death unless she entered a marriage under the pretense of being a virgin, and it was discovered not to be so. The prohibition of verse 30 is most likely a reference to, not to one's own mother, but rather to another one of the father's wives. You'll recall that Reuben took advantage of Jacob's wife, Bilhah, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, for which he was told in the final blessings in Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 and 4, by Jacob at his death, thou shalt not excel. In chapter 23, we begin a passage that talks about self mutilators. In verse 1, he that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the lord a phrase is used three times in the first three verses and here it is shall not enter into the congregation of the lord that exact terminology is restricted in the old testament to these three verses we don't know exactly what is meant by that phrase most do not feel that's a reference to dwelling among the israelites although some have suggested that it means precisely that most agree that this phrase does indeed restrict one's participation in Israel's environment in matters such as serving in the military and religious activities. It's impossible to know for certain, but verse 1 probably speaks of intentional actions emulating the self-abusive customs of the heathen people around them. Illegitimate children, referenced in verse 2, would have probably been those who were born not necessarily conceived, but born without a father and a mother. The 10th generation rule was probably used to emphasize that God detests this practice to the point that you'll never have an esteemed place within Israel. This wording could mean that they were permitted to live among the Israelites, but as second-class residents and not permitted to partake in some of the congregational activities. Then we have the treatment of Ammonites and Moabites in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 23. Verse 3. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee Balaam the son of Beor of Pithor of Mesopotamia to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God will not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever. Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. The children that are begotten of them shall enter into the congregation of the Lord in their third generation." Well, they should have been more helpful, not like the Edomites were and the Egyptians. We saw that the Canaanites weren't welcome to live among the Hebrews at all, but those outside Canaan, they were. However, here is an exception from among the Ammonites and Moabites, as we see in verse 3. It says, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. It was because of that Balaam incident back in Numbers chapter 22, which actually unfolded in chapters 23, 24, and 25, and we see it again in Numbers chapter 31. This law, however, did not forbid an Israelite man from taking a wife from among the Ammonites or the Moabites. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew verb translated shall not enter in verse 3 is masculine in gender, suggesting that males only are intended to be understood there. One's heritage in Israel was determined by one's father, not one's mother. Remember Ruth? She was a Moabite from whom King David was a descendant. If you want to see more details on that, look at the notes on the book of Ruth. Incidentally, the Jews understood the 10th generation reference in verse 3 to be the equivalent of never. That fact is seen in Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 1 where this restriction was once again enforced based upon this very verse. The Edomites and the Egyptians get a pass in verse 7. However, that was not always to be the case. Later, the Edomites would get considerable negative attention from the prophets. If you'd like to see an overview of Israel's struggle with the Edomites over the centuries, then look at the notes on Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 21. Oh, one more thing. While the Egyptians are not listed as forbidden marriages here... The returning exiles over in Ezra chapter 9 determined that Egyptian marriages were going to be forbidden as well. We have some amusing verses about the water closet of all things in chapter 23 verses 9 through 14, with the lack of a water closet, verse 9. When the host goeth forth against thine enemies, then keep thee from every wicked thing. If there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness, that chanceth him by night, then shall he go abroad out of the camp. He shall not come within the camp, but it shall be when evening cometh on. He shall wash himself with water, and when the sun is down, he shall come into the camp again. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad." And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be, when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back, and cover that which cometh from thee. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee, and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee, and turn away from thee. You know... When you got to go, you got to go. However, when you're fighting a war, nobody likes a messy camp. So, in this passage, verses 9 to 14, we see some laws that regulate even that aspect of daily life. You got to bury your business outside the camp. That's the rule, that's the law. And then we have protecting escaped slaves in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 23, verse 15. Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant which is escaped from his master unto thee. He shall dwell with thee, even among you, in that place which he shall choose, in one of thy gates, where it liketh him best. Thou shalt not oppress him. Now most of the students of the Old Testament agree that this regulation concerns a slave who escaped from his master in some foreign land, and he sought refuge in Israel. We don't know that for sure. But in addition to slaves captured in battle, debt slavery and voluntary slavery existed in Israel, and that was protected by law. So it seems unlikely that this law applies to those in those two categories of slaves. We simply aren't given any detail beyond what's in these two verses. Now, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 23, we see that no prostitution among the daughters of Israel was to be allowed. Verse 17, Verse 17, There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow, for even both these are abomination unto the Lord thy God. So you see, whoredom was just not permitted among the daughters of Israel. The price of a dog reference there speaks to money acquired by dishonorable means, probably referring to the male prostitute. Sodomy was absolutely forbidden in Israel. And here's some more laws. Look at verses 19 to 25. Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee, and all that thou settest thine hand to, in the land whither thou goest to possess it. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. That which is gone out of thy lips thou shalt keep and perform, even a freewill offering, according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. When thou comest into thy neighbor's vineyard, then thou mayest eat grapes thy fill at thine own pleasure, but thou shalt not put any in thy vessel. When thou comest into the standing of corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. All right, let's explain these. Hebrew bankers, no, not a chance. It's tough to make an income without interest, and you couldn't charge interest. You could, however, lend to non-Hebrews with interest. And another law, don't promise it or make a vow. If you can't keep it, we see that in verses 21 to 23. We find these vows dealt with in Leviticus chapter 27 and Numbers chapter 30 also. And how about those poor people? Eat whatever you want to out of the vineyard, but don't you dare carry anything away in a basket or a container of any kind. And regarding the cornfield, only take what you can pluck by hand. Incidentally, the Pharisees accused the disciples of Jesus of breaking the law when they gathered corn on the Sabbath day for personal consumption. That's found in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8, and the parallel passages, Mark 2, 23 to 28, and Luke 6, 1 through 5. They accused, these Pharisees accused the disciples of reaping corn on the Sabbath day. Well, we see from this passage of Scripture that doing so in the field itself was simply feeding oneself. It wasn't reaping at all. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The Background Music these podcast is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.